Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Brian Bellow. I'm Nathan Connolly. I'm Joanne Freeman. And I'm Ed Ayers. If you're new to the podcast, we're all historians, and each week we explore the history of one topic that's been in the news. Now, picture a whaling ship out at sea in the middle of the 19th century, during the height of the whaling industry. As the crew works together, pulling halyards to set sails or pumping the lever windlass to raise anchor, they sing a type of work song called a sea shanty. Oh, Sally Brown, she's a bright mulatta. Way, roll and go, a pretty gal, but I can't get at her. Spend my money on Sally Brown. Oh, Sally lives in old Jamaica. Way, roll and go. She drinks rum and chaws tobacco. Spend my money on Sally Brown. The voice you just heard is scholar Gib Schreffler. He says sea shanties like Sally Brown were more than just catchy sailor songs. They were actually used to coordinate maritime labor tasks on merchant ships and whaling ships. Shanties are always call-and-response songs. They always have a leader and a chorus. The chorus is performed by all of the crew aside from the leader, and the leader performs as a soloist. And what this means is that the chorus is a fixed part of the song. All, part, all of the crew must know that part of the song so that they can come in and sing it together. However, what yeah. the leader or the caller sings is completely optional to um, his, his whim, and therefore it's typically improvised. So this sounds a little like those call and responses in the military, still used today. I hear the ROTC kids march by and they do kind of a call and response with the leader. Is there any relationship? I believe that the shanty form, and I call it the shanty form because I think about over 90% of shanties have the same form. I believe that that form is shared with the form of those same military songs you're talking about. So, for instance, a military song might be, I've got a dog, his name is Jack. Yeah. I've got a dog, his name is Jack. You throw him a stick, can he bring it back? You throw him a stick, can he bring it back? That's a two-line verse, and that very same line of verse would fit into over 90% of shanties. And what would the musical line be in a shanty? How would it differ if that were a shanty? Well, the shanty form differs in that, whereas in that military song, the, the group of so- marching soldiers called back the exact line of the leader, uh-huh. uh, whereas that's the case in a shanty, the, the group sings back a different chorus. So, for example, the shanty Reuben Ranzo would go something like, Oh, poor old Reuben Ranzo, and the chorus replies, 
Renzo, boys, Renzo. And the lead singer says, oh, poor old Ruben, Renzo. And the chorus replies, Renzo, boys, Renzo. And I can fit that military song in, oh, I've got a dog, his name is Jack. Renzo, boys, Renzo. You can throw him a <laughs> stick and he won't bring it back. Renzo, boys, Renzo. So it's the way that the caller and the response are exactly evenly balanced in that way. Yeah, now that's fascinating. Uh, so tell me about hierarchy here. W were the leaders uh, superior in rank, or did they just have better voices, even if they were the lowest man on the totem pole, the mixed metaphors? Sure, the leaders absolutely had no formal ranking or you know higher lower or otherwise anywhere uh -huh. else they were the regular crew members they came from the irregular crew uh it could of course be argued and it has been said um but though with little documentation um to really back it up that the leader had a higher status perhaps in the eyes of his crewmates but they were somebody who was considered to be a kind of man of words uh -huh. somebody who was witty somebody had the improvisational ability so what were these sea chanties generally about? What were the topics? You want to share some of the lyrics with us? There oftentimes were themes of longing to be on the shore if you weren't on the shore. That makes sense. Or just typical, I guess, if you could um, say typical working class popular song themes. Now, there's a third, maybe one final category of lyrics that I'm not really sure what category you'd put them in to say what they're about because these are lyrics that are characteristic of the popular african-american styled song at the time which um from some kind of you know literary analysis perspective may oftentimes appear to be nonsense you know the bullfrog is sitting on the rock and then the, right. the possum jumped over the bullfrog and sort of themes like that which may often have some kind of deeper meaning encoded into them but they sound like just things that rhyme. So oftentimes there's more attention was paid to just the images and the sound of the rhyme than trying to create any particular thematic content because shanties were not, hardly ever were they narrative. You didn't try to sustain a story over several verses, but each verse was a thought in itself. Today on the show, we're returning to the history of whales and whaling in America. We'll be hearing about women who passed as men on whaling ships. And we'll find out how a whale visited the Midwest in the 19th century. And we'll learn about the African-American roots of sea shanties. While 19th century literature made whaling sound exciting and heroic, the reality was often a lot less romantic. What do you mean? It, that long hours, the great food. What's not to love on a whaling ship? <laughs> well, let's just say years at sea, uh, <laughs> really dangerous conditions on deck, uh, uncertain pay. I mean, those aren't the best selling points, but some people saw it as an opportunity. And whaling was appealing to many black men with few other alternatives ashore. Some mm. were already free, but others were trying to escape slavery. So just so we're clear, they went from being enslaved to being stuck on a whaling ship. Well, they were paid a small share of any profit. But the question of whether whaling was a means of escape or further imprisonment lies at the heart of the black whaling experience. 
So New England's sort of intimately involved in the transatlantic slave trade, sending ships over to uh, collect slaves, uh, to purchase slaves and bring to the Caribbean and then up along the, the east coast of the United States. That's Jeffrey Fortin, associate professor of history at Emanuel College. You know, as the 18th century sort of wears on and New Englanders begin to question the morality of slavery, especially Quakers who were particularly involved in the slave trade early on in funding it, they begin to think, you know, maybe this isn't exactly what you know, God may find as being ethical. And so at this same sort of moment, there's a lot of overlap. That is that whaling ships out of New England followed similar transatlantic routes as earlier slave ships. And there are even a few horrific instances of ships leaving New England as a whaling ship, picking up slaves in Africa and dropping them off in South America before returning home. I had no idea. So, did whaling ships perpetuate similar types of racism that people of color would have experienced on land? Not necessarily. Ships were a bit of reprieve from racism based on a kind of meritocracy, mostly because, well, everyone is stuck on a ship together for a pretty long stretch of time, and they had to depend on each other to do their jobs. If they did their jobs well, they won respect and gratitude. You know, the Native Americans, for example, in their journals, when they're on land— discuss race all the time. When they're on board ships, you know, ideas and, and discussions about race sort of take back uh, the back seat. And so you can see that on board the ships, there maybe wasn't equality, but there certainly was a leveling effect that uh, persons of color experienced. Interesting. But did whaling ever help people of color access greater opportunities back on the land? Sometimes it did. For the earliest and perhaps most striking example, we can turn to the story of Paul Cuffey. So Paul Cuffey was born in Cuttyhunk, um, which is a small island that's a part of the chain of the Elizabethan Islands in Buzzards Bay, which is on, it's, it's right next to Cape Cod, but it doesn't get quite the, the fanfare as, as Cape Cod does today. And he was born to uh, a former enslaved African man named Kofi and uh, a Wampanoag, his Wampanoag mother. Cuffey shows incredible promise and determination from a very early age. He does become literate, uh, at the very least during his teenage years, uh, where he takes over his father's exercise book, which is a book that you would use to practice writing in. And so when his father dies, when he's about 14, he takes that book over and teaches himself how to write. But Cuffey quickly realizes that being literate won't be enough to give him a shot at success. And so he sets his sights on whaling as a means to become a self-made man. He actually, uh, as a teenager, does go to, uh, to the sea on a whale voyage, uh, whaling voyage to the Gulf of Mexico. And on this voyage, he sort of gets a sense of, of what the possibilities are. And he ends up on another voyage in the Gulf of Maine. Um, and from there, he takes his earnings and buys the hardware to build his first ship called the Ranger. So he's basically going from being a whaler to being an entrepreneur. Absolutely, Brian. And just as important, Cuffey comes to believe in the Quaker values he's encountering and becomes convinced that he has an equal stake in the society emerging around him. On uh, one of his whaling voyages, he is said to have killed five or six whales himself as the ship's captain. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I, I think there was a little bit of uh, aggrandizement there, but, but you know, this he can see that power and and the money certainly that could be made, um, but also that he could go out there and demonstrate 
that he had the skill and the abilities to do the same thing that other whalers did. And so when the time comes to further his own ambitions and to help create a society in which ambition like his can be rewarded, he joins the American Revolution. Then he also takes another step in, in, in joining the cause, if you will, in building a small dory, uh, which is a little rowboat, and rowing out through Buzzards Bay to Martha's Vineyard and providing Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket Islands with supplies because they're being squeezed out by the British blockade. You know, he does. He is celebrated in, in newspapers. One of the stories that newspapers always tell about him when, when discussing him is his are his daring raids, uh, you know, at night through Buzzards Bay to get supplies to fellow patriots. Cuffey was actually captured and held prisoner by the British during one of these risky trips. So it sounds like even as an African-American, he had just as much stake in the country getting free. Well, not really. <laughs> he, he believed in it, but he couldn't vote. But he was determined to try to hold America up to its ideals. Uh, he writes a few petitions along with his brother and, and a couple other uh, men of color in his hometown of Dartmouth, which later becomes Westport, Massachusetts, uh, demanding you know, the right to vote. And if you know, is essentially arguing if you're not going to give us the right to vote, then we shouldn't pay taxes. Seems like I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Cuffey was trying to hold America up to the ideals espoused by the patriots a few years earlier during the Boston Tea Party. You might say it's Cuffey's attempt at a black tea party. <laughs> well, that's a terrible pun, Nathan, and his petitions <laughs> didn't yield immediate success. They may have helped sway public opinion, but it was another 20 years until free black men won the right to vote in Massachusetts, all the way in 1800. Mm. Yeah, uh, two decades is a heck of a long time to wait. But we got to point out that's still well in advance of a lot of other African-Americans in the new nation. Certainly. But Cuffey continued to feel the harsh sting of racism throughout his life, despite all that he accomplished. Then he comes back from a voyage and his ship gets impounded by the American government because of the War of 1812 and the Embargo Act. And he travels to Washington, D.C. to meet with the Secretary of State to try to get his ship back. And on his way out of D.C., he goes on, on to a, gets on board a stagecoach and he's relegated to the back, back of the stagecoach. So, you know, it's a, it's a sort of a harsh reality, if you will, of what his status really was. And this was probably the wealthiest African-American in, in America at that point, if not close to it. Um, and here he is still sitting, you know, in the back of a stagecoach. And toward the end of his life, Cuffey started worrying about how newly freed slaves would be able to support themselves in America. So he had a proposal for what he thought newly free black men could do. He encouraged them to go whaling. Okay, Brian, here's a question for you. What would you do if you really wanted to see a whale and the Discovery Channel wasn't due to be invented for another hundred years? You know, Nathan, I've really never thought about that question before. You just wait for the train. The train? Check it out. For two years, between 1880 and 1882, a whale toured the Midwest on the back of a train. People came from far and wide to see the sideshow attraction like no other. And the best part, it was called 
the Prince of Wales. <laughs> You're making that up, Nathan. <laughs> no, 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 there's more. Because, of course, the longer the whale was on the tour, the worse it smelled. <laughs> Jamie Jones is assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And she has traced the story of the whale and the two entrepreneurs that put it on the train. The two proprietors were George Newton, a lawyer and sometimes a real estate agent from a small town in Massachusetts called Monson. And he'd had an idea for a long time that it would make a great Barnum-esque sideshow exhibition to get a whale and tour it around the country. In fact, George Newton wrote to P.T. Barnum initially in 1880 before he eventually teamed up with his with his partner to see if Barnum did want to get to him. And Barnum's secretary wrote back to him and said, quote, that Barnum's time was so taken up that he could not give any speculation such attention. Although I think we can read between the lines and see that Barnum thought this was a um, bad idea, a smelly idea. But eventually, George Newton partnered with a man named Fred Englehart, who was a sports promoter and former sports journalist in the Midwest, in St. Louis and Chicago. So Fred Englehart had a lot of connections. He knew how to set up these pop-up exhibitions. He had a lot of contacts in the Midwest. And he partnered with George Newton, and they formed the Pioneer Inland Whaling Association in 1880. Now, you have to walk me through the logistics of something like this. How do you take a living animal the size of a whale from the ocean, presumably on the East Coast, and get it on a train heading west toward Chicago? So what happened is George Newton went up and down the East Coast meeting with whaling captains. And by this point in 1880, the U.S. commercial whaling industry is really on the decline. Mm -hmm. Starting in the 1860s, petroleum Petroleum, so rock oil, kind of came into the market to replace whale oil as a source of machine lubrication and illumination. And so whaling, commercial whaling for whale oil was really on the decline. And I, I think that Newton might not have been able to find a whaling captain to bring him a whole whale if, in fact, the market for whale oil had been stronger. Oh, so in some ways, the fact that this whale made it to shore at all, I think, is a testament to the decline of this industry and the rise of uh, fossil fuel mineral mm -hmm. extraction and consumption. So Newton goes up and down the East Coast looking for a whaling captain who's willing to Harpoon a whale as close to shore as possible, <laughs> tow it back to him on shore. Sounds like from Newton's letters that he tried a lot of different whaling captains before he finally found one in Provincetown. Then in November of 1880, he got a telegram saying that his contact in Provincetown had captured him a whale. Newton uh, then hired someone to tow the whale from Provincetown Harbor to Boston Harbor, yeah. which is a good distance. And there at Boston, they contracted with the dry dock people to create a kind of cradle, something that might be used to lift a large ship out of mm -hmm. the water and bring in the dry dock for repairs. But they adapted all of this sort of dockside infrastructure for a whale. And they lifted it out of the water and put it on two specially reinforced rail cars that had been built for the purpose of exhibiting this whale and from what I understand, although the proprietors are very cagey about the details for reasons you can probably imagine, it seems like the whale was at least partially cut open and gutted and filled with a combination of salt and ice. Mm. This sounds like an extraordinarily expensive proposition. It does seem like a very expensive proposition, but it also seems like for a while, at least, it was a money-making proposition. Right. 
During the, the Wales exhibition in Chicago, especially in January, it made a lot of money. There were, it seems, thousands and possibly even on some days, tens of thousands of visitors who are paying something like 25 cents a head to come into this exposition hall and view the body of the whale. So for a while, at least, uh, I think that the whale also made a lot of money. So, so the whale's debut is in Chicago. Is that right? The, the whale was debuted at this huge exposition building in Chicago, which was uh, very near the lake and near a lot of the uh, railroad connections at that time. It's actually on a site that is now the site of the Chicago Institute of Art. So the sort of place where there were a lot of industrial trade shows in Chicago, and it was a place where big public exhibitions like this could be staged. The whale debuted to great acclaim. A lot of people came. Uh, visitors were invited to come and peek inside the mouth of the whale, which was called the place where Jonah went in. Um, and so this whale, you know, as it's this, this whale's body as it's being exhibited is also being embedded in all of these cultural stories about whales from the 19th century going all the way back. A visitor begins his observation generally at the head of the fish, looks into his capacious mouth, feels of the long, bony hair that supply the place of teeth, hunts for the eyes, the snout, and then the ears, walks along the side of the creature, catches hold of the huge fin, punches the monster in the side as if to ascertain if it is ribless, and finally brings up at the tail of the huge fellow where the broad flukes are spread. After Chicago, the whale goes to Milwaukee, St. Louis, Cincinnati, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Toledo, and Detroit. Now, in April, things are starting to go bad. You know, the whale is starting to smell. Mm. And Newton, from the very, very beginning, Newton's very anxious about how long this show is going to last and in his letters home to his son, he nicknames the whale the bird. He writes constantly, if the bird gives out, we go out of business for a while. <laughs> uh, and so he's very worried about the bird giving out. And in April of 1881 in Cleveland, the bird was giving out. Mm. So Newton and Englehart tried their first big spectacular effort to try to preserve the body of the whale mm -hmm. and make it fit for exhibition. Um, and they hired a team of butchers to treat the whale's body with some kind of chemical substance. And they um, they said in, in some reports that they fumigated the whale mm. or that they coated it or that they embalmed it. There's a lot of these, this language of decontamination or even kind of preparing the body as if for a funeral. And because Newton and Englehart are masters of publicity, uh, you know, they're writing about their efforts to remediate the whale, to sort of save the whale from its own putrefaction. And they're making a kind of another press event out of the whale's decline because they are such geniuses of publicity and promotion. Now, in spite of these efforts, I have to imagine that as the whale starts to rot, people do start to slow down to a trickle. That's right. And uh, the news coverage of the whale show really changes uh, starting even as early as February, but intensifying around April and May. The, and the coverage is less about the spectacle of the whale and what a marvelous exhibition it is and more about how you know, how ungodly it smells and how you can smell the whale for miles before you see the whale. <laughs> and I can only imagine, too, I had the opportunity to see a beached whale in Connecticut a couple of years ago, mm. in fact. And just the smell is just, um, it really is over overpowering. Mm. 
So I can only imagine how, you know, it's been, what, from November to April? Right. You know, it's been six months that the whales (laughs) went out of the water and decomposing. It seems uh, as though the whale show itself was thrown out of Toledo because of the enormous smell and civic leaders were getting involved in treating the show as a public nuisance in some places. Toledo. Phew! What a smell. Fishy smell. To the heavens it seemed to swell. We asked our friend if he is acquainted here. He says no. So it would do no good to ask why this aroma. But passing along, a handbill is thrust into our hands, telling us of the whale dead and in bad odor, being in the city, and then we understood whence this all-pervading perfume. The Kalamazoo Telegraph, May 1881. They tried their sort of second last-ditch effort to preserve the whale or rebuild it or, or keep it a kind of going show in the summer of 1881. And again, a very highly publicized event. Englehart set up uh, in rural Michigan uh, a site that he called Camp Baleen. Um, again, kind of publicizing and um, and making myth even out of the uh, disaster of this show, where he hired a team of taxidermists from Detroit to come up and rebuild the whale from the inside out. And um, Englehart's account of Camp Baleen is is very colorful. Uh, Newton, by this point, has gone home to Massachusetts. Uh, who can blame the guy? And Englehart writes home to Newton to give him a report on how the project of rebuilding the whale is going. Mm-hmm. And at one point, Englehart says this, We are here... In saying that, I say almost all that can be said. Mosquitoes, (laughs) flies, bugs, and snakes predominate and form the largest part of the atmosphere. The work is terrible. You have no idea. But to the press who are trying to find this site and visit it and see exactly what kind of alchemy is going on at Camp Baleen, Inglehart is nothing but positive, talking about the genius of these Detroit taxidermists and the fact that the whale will be ready for its grand re-debut in just a few short weeks or months. And again, you know, um, Inglehart is making of this uh, a great spectacle of publicity, even as the whale itself is is uh, riding down to nothing. And the fact that, I guess, that whaling itself is literally a dying trade is also not lost on some of the observers. Right, absolutely. Whale oil production reached its peak, peak whale oil, in the 1850s. In the 1840s and 50s were when the U.S. commercial whaling industry was booming. For example, during the decade of the 1840s, we know that at least 2,363 whaling voyages were launched from U.S. ports. By the 1880s, when the Prince of Wales is making its tour across the U.S., only 736 whaling voyages are leaving. And that's, I think, because the market for whale oil in the U.S. is declining very rapidly given the abundance um, and the relative Mm -hmm. uh, cheapness of producing petroleum that's coming from the oil fields in Pennsylvania. What's the ultimate fate of this giant carcass? It's hard to know. The archive starts to run cold in the spring of 1882 and 1883, I know that uh, that things are not always what they seem is exemplified in the case of this whale. The skin and tail of this monarch of the vasty deep was all that it purported to be, but its frame, alas, was of iron and hickory and its flesh of sawdust and other deceptive lightweights. Um, which I think in some ways allows us to reverse engineer what happened perhaps at Camp Baleen or in Cleveland 
uh, when Newton and Englehart were frantically trying to remake the body of the whale to keep it on the road mm. as it decomposed. I was talking to Jamie Jones, assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's working on a book about energy, obsolescence, and the decline of the U.S. whaling industry. I want to return to our discussion of sea shanties. Earlier in the episode, we learned about how they were used to coordinate labor tasks and we heard an example of a typical work song. Today, many people assume that chanties have an English heritage. But according to scholar Gib Schreffler, sea chanties can be traced back to the 1830s, originating from African-American music and borrowing heavily from popular minstrel songs of the time. Also, a quick warning to parents with children listening. Brian attempts to sing a shanty at the end of the segment. This may be a good time to cover their sensitive ears. Well, I do, as I believe that shanty is a genre of music, I believe that was a genre that emerged in the Americas, more specifically in what we could call the African diaspora of the Western Atlantic. So I would include the United States along with other countries of the, the Caribbean and then this kind of um, Black Atlantic world. So the genre emerges there, and it's in the paradigm, I would say, of West African song in which I was about to say work song, but again, I want to be careful. It's not only for work specifically, but it's a a paradigm in which the practice is to embed song in physical action, whether that's uh-huh. a play action, a dance action, or whether it's a work action. Um, the song doesn't necessarily exist as a separate entity in itself, but it's a vocalization, a sound that you make within another activity where you're you're moving your body in some way and this paradigm i believe you know was carried with africans to the new world and was reimagined in you know what came to be african-american music and african-americans use this type of genre shanty was not the only form there was more than one type of work song form but they used them in various working contexts across the whole network of african-american life all the way from the deepest plantations from there downriver into the seaports and then eventually onto the ships. And when do you when would you place that time-wise? I, I I don't mean a specific day, but roughly in in which decades or what period of uh, American history in this case? About the second half of the 1830s was when a very notable context emerged for uh, multiracial labor, wherein white workers entered what could have been considered up to that point a black labor context, and that was the context of loading cotton aboard ships in ports of the, the, the Gulf in the United States. And I believe that the, that, was, that was the time period when, as it turned out, this labor of loading cotton was one of, if not the best paid labors you could do on shore best paid manual labor. It was a coveted profession. And many um, local white Americans, as well as many immigrants from Ireland and Germany, especially had been coming at the time, were um, entering this profession in number. 
So that's about when we can, I think we can start to narrow down. And then we start to hear, see accounts after that of these, um, these immigrants had come on ship and then they, they work for a season because cotton loading was a seasonal profession. When that season is done, they go back onto a ship and become sailors. And we read of people on the ship saying, wow, these, this, this crew that we have is excellent. They, they were people, these are the guys who work loading cotton in one season and now they're back on the ship and they can set all the sails with all these songs and very efficiently and they work very hard. Could you talk to me a little bit about the connection between sea shanties and minstrelry? The development of the shanty genre was happening at precisely the same time as the blackface minstrel genre of music was was developing in the United States. Um, we know that the minstrel music was, at that time, the middle of the 19th century I'm talking about, kind of starting in the 1830s, having its first peak actually in a year we can pinpoint 1843, and then continuing from there, the minstrel genre was the most popular genre of music in the United States and eventually spreads globally. And this would have been popular music with all of the sailors, whether the sailors were white or black, they were interested in this type of music. It was the popular music. I think we need to um, throw aside the notion that sailors on their ships would have sang what they would have considered to be traditional songs. They didn't, weren't necessarily interested in singing old songs. They were interested in the music they liked. So it was music that was current to them. And the current popular mm -hmm. music, by all accounts, was minstrel music. And we know that the sailors on their off-duty time when they weren't working, their entertainment music in this period was um, largely made up of minstrel music as well, which they would recreate with the instruments like the banjo and the fiddle and the tambourine. And we also know that when sailors got to port, they would, for entertainment, they would head to a theater and maybe see a performance of minstrel music. Now, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about minstrel music. What resonates with us in hindsight is the racist nature of the genre, and there's no discounting of that, and there's no, we shouldn't yield any ground to the fact that that was part of the minstrel genre. But it's interesting as well to consider that um, at the time minstrel music was starting to develop, this was, for many white Americans, it was their first exposure to something like black American musical style. And this was a style that, that caught on like wildfire amongst white Americans. And the early minstrel music, um, perhaps more than many people realize, probably was a good reflection of African-American musical style. Now, that ranged on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. You could have a really awful you know, interpretation or you could have quite a good one. But in general, it was in the ballpark of what could be identified as an African-American music st musical style. And thus... Uh, I think it made African-American musical characteristics familiar to a very, very large, large audience and made them popular. So I think at this, by this point, the mid-19th century, Americans generally, if we could say that, and then soon the whole world was becoming more familiar with the characteristics of African-American musical style. So this um, made the reception of shanties that much easier since they were also in African-American musical style. I'll just conclude by giving you um, a, a close comparison between one minstrel song that's very familiar and um, the shanty form. 
And perhaps one of the most famous minstrel songs was Stephen Foster's The Camptown Ladies, published in the mid-19th century. And of course, that's the song that goes, The Camptown Ladies sing this song, do-da, do-da. The Camptown race jack five miles long, oh, do-da day. Now that song is in the exact form of a shanty. I could say the halyard shanty, the one used to haul on the lines that raise the mm. sails. Duda, duda. Those are two pulls. Duda is the first one. The second duda is your second pull. And then that's your first chorus. And then you have a second chorus. Oh, duda, day. On O oh, you would pull, and on day you would pull. And that's exactly wow. like I could sing. Ranzo boys, Ranzo, as I sang earlier. So I could sing my Ruben Ranzo and go, um, uh, Oh, the camp town ladies sing this song. Ranzo boys, Ranzo. The camp town racetrack five miles long. Ranzo boys, Ranzo. So I believe the minstrel songs had that form because they emerged more or less from African-American musical style. And the shanties also came from that origin. So they mm. happened to have the same lyrical form and the shanties singers borrowed from minstrel song lyrics all the time. I've always associated sea shanties with uh, English heritage. I mean, in my case, yeah. specifically Benjamin Britten. But yeah. I couldn't be the only one who assumes that the heritage of sea shanties are Anglo-American white. Uh, yeah. How did we get so off track? Well, in the 19th century, the writers about shanties did not think that they were English or British primarily. In fact, British writers commented on the genre and said, look at these songs, look at their lyrics, what they're singing about. They, they have the absolute aroma of the Americas to them. And American writers would look at them and say, these songs have the sound of black American music. But in the early 20th century, there emerged the um, rather new phenomenon of academic folklore. <laughs> oh, come on. Don't tell me the answer to this is academics screwing up again. Come on, Gib. Well, you have a um, cohort of English folklorists. They're very enamored with the idea of folk, and they're developing theoretically the idea of this word folk, which had not been in great usage up to that point. And they're thinking about it in these ways like, well, folk is speaks to the true essence of a people. Right. You know, it's kind of what's inside of you. It comes with you right. as a people, not as a, a culture that any people could learn, but it's almost in your DNA. And yep. We could recover the, um, the, the English spirit and the English people if we can recover <laughs> our, kind of our true essence of the folk of the past. And people looking at shanties, on one hand, were looking for a specific thing, so they had their sort of confirmation bias. They wanted the pure folk essence, so they were rejecting any kind of popular musical source. They already had the, uh, in, their idea in mind that it was English, so they're being highly selected in the material and, and presenting that and shaping it to fit the narrative that they had. Well, uh, we're going to do a call and response right now. You ready? <laughs> okay. I just learned a deeply cool thing. I just learned a deeply cool thing. You just made the story ring. 
You just made the story ring. That's all I got, Gib. Thank you so much for joining us on Backstory. My pleasure. Gib Schreffler is assistant professor of music at Pomona College. In the 19th century, if you happen to be a young boy cooped up in the heavily populated East Coast, the world of cowboys and Indians might seem just too remote to even dream of. But instead, you might look up to whalers as the epitome of the American masculine ideal. The heyday of whaling in 19th century America is really sort of tied in with the masculine idea of freedom at sea um, that, that ran counterpart to the allure of the American West. So this is a romantic notion um, that imagined the freedom in this space of adventure to a large degree because it was outside the boundaries of civilization. That's Anita Denier. She's an associate professor of English at Rhode Island College. They were trying to escape the busy world of women. So you think of, if we think about, you know, Huck Finn trying to avoid, you know, being civilized by Aunt Sally or, or of course, Ishmael, who was drawn to the, wa- the water to avoid the boredom and drudgery of being nailed to his office, to office desks. But that was also wrapped up with this idea of, uh, of this space that was um, uh, what I call the maritime romantic ideal, which is often associated with the notion of the brotherhood of the sea. Uh, Wait a second. Weren't there any sisters of the sea? In fact, now that I think about it, that has kind of a better ring to it. Well, in reality, there were sometimes women on board. But even when there weren't any women, whaling ships often replicated gender roles among the men on board anyway. The division of labor replicated certain gender roles that, in the absence of women, were assumed by men. So the men that were assigned positions typically associated with women's work, the cook, the steward, and the cabin boy who would serve as sort of a a valet um, and housekeeper for the captain's quarters, um, those were often coded as feminine. And on the opposite side of the spectrum, the harpooners, the hunters, were seen as as hyper-masculine. Interesting. So even in the far-flung reaches of the sea, whalers allowed civilization to creep on board their ships. Good point, Nathan. And and Ed, are you saying that there actually would be women on board? Well, sometimes. And if there was a woman on board, it would have been the captain's wife. I guess you could say that getting to bring your wife along was a perk of the job. One of his perks, perhaps, but probably not much of a perk for her. I thought sailors used to say that bringing a woman on board was bad luck. Yeah, there were a lot of superstitious beliefs and a lot of ambivalence about women going on board whaling ships from all concern, from the ship's owner to the women themselves. Owners liked the idea that a woman on board would be a civilizing influence, uh, thinking, for example, that the captain would not condone illicit sexual encounters between the men and island women. The biggest argument against wives on board was really the potential conflict of interest, because if a captain believed his wife to be uh, deathly ill, she was going into labor, he felt as though she needed to go ashore, this could influence him to leave lucrative whaling grounds in order to take his wife to port. 
As for the captain's wives, once they were out at sea, some tried to make do and carry on with their maternal duties even amid the chaos of a long, grueling voyage. One captain's wife kept a diary about her experience raising kids while whaling. Well, um, Eliza Williams talks about um, her trying to keep her little boy safe during a, a gale. And she writes about um, an awful swell and the, everything is rolling about the ship. And, and she writes, it seems as if she is going under sometimes. The chests and trunks that are not made fast go across the cabin. Um, and another thing that she talks about is trying to keep the child clean. And anyone who has tried to keep a two-year-old out of a mud puddle or away from harm can uh, may, may be amazed at the, the challenges of motherhood on a whaling ship. She writes, All three of the ships are boiling today. We are also caulking decks and consequently are dirty enough. Willie has a good time with it all, and between the oil and tar, I can't keep him clean an hour. I got to say, I wouldn't want to be responsible for keeping kids away from boiling whale blubber. That definitely doesn't sound like a fun parenting situation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. These were pretty courageous parents, Nathan. Can you imagine how many times they had to listen to, are we there yet? (laughs) (laughs) But not all captains' wives had the determination to make it work. Eliza Brock also kept a diary of her journey at sea, and, well, she hated every minute of it. Her diary is in the Nantucket Historical Society, and it is full of pages and pages of original poetry, and it's all just extremely mournful. One stanza of her poetry reads, When will kind fortune set me free that I shall leave the boisterous sea? I love my friends. I love the shore. I long to leave of ocean's roar. So you've got whalers chasing freedom at sea. And I bet many of the captain's wives probably were chasing freedom on the shore when they got a chance. Oh, certainly. (laughs) This sentiment is probably best expressed in the Nantucket Girl Song. She says, I have made up my mind now to be a sailor's wife, to have a purse full of money and a very easy life. And then uh, later she says, then I'll haste to wed a sailor and send him off to sea, for a life of independence is the pleasant life for me. And in reality, the vast majority of women happily stayed behind on land. And those women could have gained some independence on land, I suspect, unlike the whalers trapped on those long voyages. Yeah, and their sense of isolation might help explain the myths that began to spread. Myths about women sneaking onto whaling ships disguised as men. Okay, Ed. Clearly you've been watching too many HBO shows. That's not something that really (laughs) happened, right? We know of a few women who masqueraded as men on whaling voyages, but we really don't have much evidence because they didn't write diaries. They didn't write their stories down like the whaling wives did. We don't know that there were many, but we do know that there were one or two. Um, But we do know that that was a a popular idea, a popular sort of romantic fantasy about the cross-dressing cabin boy. But since we don't have access to these women's stories as told from their own perspective, we spoke to an artist, Naveen G. Condosos, who imagined what it would have been like on board a whaling ship disguised as a male. And in a piece of performance art, she actually went on a ship and tried to embody the experience of these women who went on whaling ships disguised as men. Now that's really a commitment to her craft. Absolutely. Here's how she describes what she imagines life was like on board. 
The things that always struck me were this feeling of um, isolation and being in a very, very enclosed space um, and not being able to leave that space at any point, um, but being surrounded by a vastness. I think that's the real kind of dichotomy that really interested me. And I think that maybe time as well, I can imagine that the a notion of time must have been very different as well. Um, you know, you had these kind of huge stretches of boredom. So I think all in all, I'm not sure like, how much fun it was. So you're saying that to fill the boredom, they started imagining that women were on board with them? Exactly. That could be one explanation. Often the mythology is that this woman has met a sailor on shore um, and she has fallen in love with him. And when he has to depart, she's so forlorn that she decides that she must go and join him wherever he is. Um, so she dresses as a man in order to do this. You know, the end goal is normally love. You know, they're trying to rejoin something or somebody rather than wanting that life for themselves. But I think that's much more, you know, the, the stuff of stories. In one of the few recorded instances we have of a woman disguising herself as a man on a whaling ship, it seems like romantic love was hardly a motivation. We know about the story of Georgina Leonard through other sailors' correspondence about her. Scholars have been able to piece together how she tried to pass herself off as George Weldon on a whaling ship in 1862. Um, she'd already had several brawls with um, her fellow crew members, but she pulled a knife on one of her fellow uh, crew members when she got into a fight with him for, when she was accused of not rowing um, well enough and, and sort of being lazy, and she pulled this knife out and... At the moment of her being punished back on the boat, she went to the captain to reveal her gender and to say to him, that actually, like, you know, sort of taking my shirt off on the deck in front of the crew when you, you know, have to um, punish me, which was normally like being given, you know, sort of strokes on the back or something. Um, I think I'm going to try and get out of this by telling you that I'm Georgiana rather than George. Well, it sounds like she's pretty much in charge in this story, deciding how and when to present herself as masculine or feminine. So how did Naveen go about emulating Georgina? She went on a restored 19th century whaling ship with other academics, researchers, and museum patrons, and throughout the trip, committed to trying to emulate what Georgina must have gone through in trying to pass herself off as George. Um, you know, I went to a barber and had my hair cut short. I tried to, like, drop my voice um, a bit deeper than what it normally is, um, and talk slightly differently and hold myself slightly differently. And, and I sort of, you know, try to embody this uh, present. But then whilst being on the boat, um, I was filming myself performing actions um, that would have been day-to-day -day things that a woman trying to conceal her gender, you know, Georgina passing as George, you know, how would she get dressed in the morning or undress at night without you know, revealing her body. How do you deal with having a period when you're on board a boat? Um, how would you, how do you deal with that? Would you, you know, muss up your clothes or? The other thing was, you know, how do you go to the toilet? Like, how do you, how do you pee or do other things in public in a way that would have been very normal with, again, without like revealing the, that which is there or is not there? Well, that sounds like a lot of work even to be pretending to be a man on a ship. I can't imagine what it would have really been like. A very different picture emerges from the sea shanty that was most commonly sung, the handsome cabin boy. It is of a pretty female, as you shall understand. She had a mind for roving into some foreign land. 
Attired in sailor's clothing, this fair maid did appear, and engaged with the captain to serve him for a year. Oh, doctor, oh, doctor, the cabin boy did cry. The sailors swore by all that's good, the cabin boy would die. The doctor ran with all his might and laughing at the fun to think a cabin boy should have a daughter or a son. The sailors soon found out the joke and all began to stare. The child belonged to none of them, they solemnly did swear. The captain's lady to him said, My dear, I wish you joy, for either you or I betrayed the handsome cabin boy. That she has to, like, be a sex object. That that's, like, her, that's her role, you know? You know, that the only way of being discovered is through, like, your body um, doing what a female body will do, which is to give birth because you've been having sex with the captain rather than because you were doing your job and like maybe you fell out of the you know sails and you like broke your leg and they had to undress you in these popular myths women on whaling ships were deprived of agency objectified as something to be desired or the butt of a joke yeah and while the history of women in whaling may be sparse and does require us to fill a lot of gaps The way women were affected by whaling, the stories told and imagined about them, do tell us a lot about how wide the possibility of finding freedom at sea truly was, or more often, was not. So guys, help me imagine a world where there is no plastic, there's no petroleum, there's just this giant whale as basically the chemical factory for American life. Apparently everything in one's house could be seen in one way or another relating to this industry. And I just ha- I'm just trying to imagine how all-encompassing whaling must have been to the average American in the 19th century. Well, I think uh, just about any household uh, would have been fortunate to have had uh, whale oil to run its lamps, so much superior to anything else that was available to light your Mm. home, far better than tallow candles or or fire, (laughs) Uh, and had this clean, burning, uh, even kind of sweet-smelling whale oil was one of the greatest luxuries that you could have. And less visible, but probably just as important, was lubricating machinery. I mean, we're talking about the very period that the American Industrial Revolution is Mm. taking off and all those clanking machines, or many of them anyway, uh, are lubricated by whale oil. They're not just, you know, driving parts of the American economy. They're also objects of mythology, right? The Americans are wrapping stories around these animals and the hunting of them. I mean, what does that tell us, if anything? Well, certainly it seems to touch on a kind of theme that Americans plugged into literature and culture definitely in the 19th century. And that is, you know, the American as independent and Mm. strong and mastering nature. You know, I mean, it seems like whaling tales plug right into that idea of what the American was often seen as in the 19th century. Mm. 
Yeah, I think there's an element that the whaling industry remains kind of pre-industrial for a long time, even though, as Brian says, it actually plays a critical role in early industry. You know, you have the, you think about Moby Dick, uh, which I just listened to as an audio book uh, over many hours <laughs> recently. And so yeah, exactly. And it, I was fascinated by it. And what was fascinating was not only the story, but also the incredible detail about what's involved in actually actually extracting uh, this oil from the whales. And you know, as people hmm. may recall from the book they didn't read in high school, uh, <laughs> that it, enormous numbers of pages are spent talking about what's involved in not only capturing the whale, but then sort of hanging it beside the ship and excavating it, basically, and then boiling hmm. it down. I think that, you know, uh, you know, Herman Melville uses the story to talk about the remarkable diversity of people on the ship. Uh, you know, people from four corners of Earth, a so-called cannibal, an African-American enslaved boy, uh, a, an African. Uh, and he has all these people on there, I think, to say something, too, about just sort of the um, ravenous hunger uh, for these rare goods that nature mm -hmm. has provided. It's a scary, scary novel about how we are driven by an almost irresistible urge forevermore. What strikes me is even though um, this is really an international enterprise. They're going into international waters. And we, we know that America from the very beginning is a trading nation connected to the whole world. Yet this whaling community is such a world unto its own. You just think right. about the folks on the ship itself. Uh, you know, they went out sometimes for well over a year, multiple years. Uh, and so on the one hand, they're connected to it a you know a, a nation that is uh trying to take its place among nations and there's certainly connected to trade on the other hand the isolation and the kind of specialization that that um you folks have talked about the skills required to extract the oil and not not to mention catch the whale i mean it's it's such a discreet isolated community in so many ways mm. So as a child of the 80s, I have to say that I, my earliest recollection of anything having to do with whaling is actually by way of science fiction. Um, and it's through Star Trek. And particularly the fourth Star Trek where the uh, crew of the Enterprise steals a Klingon vessel and tries to save all of existence by bringing a whale from the past back to the future. Great movie. Great movie. But, but it, does, it does actually speak to a, a, a real shift in the way that whales were considered. I mean, this is not the kind of beast of the you know, pre-industrial age, but this is actually a symbol of Earth on the brink. And I'm curious if there's, again, something hmm. that we can learn about the evolution of the whale as a symbol that somehow sheds some light on our own progress as a country. Oh, that's really fascinating, right? So the whale starts out as, as, as a scary thing, you know, representing this sort of uncharted space. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes linked to the Industrial Revolution, and it's a sort of mechanical slash productive thing. Mm -hmm. And now it's an endangered magical thing of the past. <laughs> right, you know, right. that's that's pretty striking. Uh, Nathan, my friend from South Florida, you <laughs> skipped one crucial stage in Joanne's uh, uh -oh. March O Time, and that's consumption. <laughs> uh, consumption. And I don't mean 
I don't mean consuming the whale. I mean entertainment. You oh. obviously ah. were never dragged to the sequarium to see Hugo the killer whale. <laughs> and it's important to remember that before we started saving the whales, we enjoyed them as spectacles of entertainment. Mm. And it wasn't just uh, the sequarium. There were similar attractions out in California. Americans marveled at being able to keep such huge animals in hmm. captivity. And it was part and parcel uh, of the whole 20th century fascination with leisure and consumption and entertainment. So I'm thinking about the 19th century, you have the, the symbol of this whale as a, as a beast of the unknown, as a, a critical piece of an industrial world. And then you think forward into the 20th century and you have whales on bumper stickers or on posters with rainbows, right, flying through space. I mean, there's an entirely different meaning of the whale as part of our visual grammar and our cultural grammar as Americans. And I'm curious if there's anything that that tells us, that concrete transformation of the whale symbol from the 19th to the 20th century. Well, in many ways, that's the domestication of the whale that we were unable to accomplish in nature, right? Mm. We, we can't actually bring them to heel, so to speak. Uh, but what we can do is turn them into a, a symbol, a commodity. And matter of fact, we've already passed mm. to the place now where Save the Whales has become almost a joke to some people, mm. right? Mm. It, it has true. become seen as the, the, the very embodiment of the fruitless, you know, environmentalism um, that like being a tree hugger. So right. it's, it's, it's passed even beyond you know, the bumper sticker to the post bumper sticker. And save the whales, the whole idea of save the whales, interestingly, really does um, in a warped kind of a way, um, celebrate or certainly symbolize the whale as victim. Hmm. Whereas, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about on this episode is the whale as this thrashing threat. Mm -hmm. So not only have we domesticated it, but we're, we're sort of domesticating it and symbolizing it as suffering at our hands. And yet, you know, what strikes me as the great common theme in all this is a kind of awe for the whale mm. of a sense mm -hmm. of they are mysterious. Um, you know, if you think back about the, all the superstitions surrounding the whale, uh, even at the time of their peak hunting, uh, and today we watch them, you know, on IMAX and and really marvel at the ability to navigate the world in these oceans in patterns we still can't understand. Right. So I think there's still a kind of mystery about them that makes them perpetually interesting. going to do it for us today. Do get in touch. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send us an email at backstory at virginia.edu. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. But whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is professor of history at the University of Virginia. 
Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.